Welcome to episode 12 of the Katie Halper Show. We just want to give you a really exciting heads up that on October 28th, we'll be talking to author Ta-Nehisi Coates, national correspondent for The Atlantic, the author of Between the World and Me and The Beautiful Struggle, and the writer who Toni Morrison has compared to James Baldwin. And another guest we're really excited to announce who will be joining us this month is comedian Judah Friedlander. So make sure you check it out. Coming up at the 6 p.m. hour will be the Katie Halper Show. Welcome to the Katie Halper Show. We're here every Wednesday from 6 p.m. to 7 p.m. on WBAI. That's WBAI.org or 99.5 FM. We are going to bring in our next guest. So excited to speak to him. Robert Mirapol is the founder and former executive director of the Rosenberg Fund for Children. He is the younger son of Ethel and Julius Rosenberg, who the U.S. government executed in 1953 for conspiring to steal the secrets of the atomic bomb. Ladies and gentlemen, a good evening to you. Four times today, Adam Spies, Julius, and Ethel Rosenberg appealed their sentence of death, and four times they were unsuccessful. They will be executed tonight, probably within the next half hour, the first husband and wife to die in the electric chair. Inside the stone walls of Sing Sing Prison, the Rosenbergs wait all day for word of their fate. It's now more than two years since they were first sentenced to die for organizing atomic espionage for Russia. Rabbi Irving Kozlow, a prison chaplain, goes in. He will not leave until after the execution, which is being held before sundown because the setting of the sun this Friday marks the beginning of the Holy Sabbath in the Jewish calendar. A matron, Mamie Creighton, comes out after seeing Ethel Rosenberg. She says the woman refuses to believe she's going to die, insists she is innocent. The hours pass slowly. Julius Rosenberg, now 35, his wife Ethel, now 37, married 14 years in one day, parents of two boys, tonight dined on hard-boiled eggs, macaroni salad, and tea. There was no time for the usual last meal. In the 1970s, Robert and his brother Michael, through extensive legal suits, forced the FBI and CIA to release 300,000 previously secret documents about their parents, which reveal a very different story than the official story the government put forward. Robert is an activist, lawyer, and founder, and until 2013, executive director of the Rosenberg Fund for Children, which provides special educational, artistic, and social support to the children of persecuted, prosecuted, and or jailed political activists. Robert is also an author of We Are Your Sons, which he wrote with his brother Michael, and he's the author of An Execution in the Family, which was published by St. Martin's Press on the 50th anniversary of his parents' executions, which examines his personal history and journey. In full disclosure, I have to admit that my counselor at summer camp, Rachel Mirapol, is his daughter. Welcome, Robert. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for joining us, and I know how busy you are, so we really appreciate your taking the time. Well, it is a very busy time, and there are exciting events on the immediate horizon. Yes. Can you tell us, to the extent that you're allowed, can you tell us about these events? This is the first public announcement on the airwaves of any sort of this upcoming event. Um, Historic moment, everyone. We all heard a lot of news over the summer because material was released from the original grand jury testimony of the chief prosecution witness in my parents' case, David Greenglass. And what was discovered when this material was released 
was that the evidence that was used to convict my mother was based upon perjured testimony and that there was no credible evidence within the trial of my parents that my mother, Ethel, was guilty of anything. You and your brother wrote an op-ed that was Mm -hmm. in the New York Times in August entitled Mm -hmm. Exonerate Our Mother, Ethel Rosenberg. It was a demand of President Obama to do that, and the fact that the New York Times was willing to publish it indicates that this is becoming a mainstream, a relatively mainstream position. And what's on the horizon is that next Monday would have been my mother's 100th birthday. And to mark that very special occasion, members of the New York City Council will issue a proclamation in her honor on that date. Wow. Um, There are other city officials who will be issuing joint statements at the same time, and at least eight members of the immediate Mirapol family will be there on hand for this historic ceremony that will take place at 11 a.m. on the steps of City Hall. I can't talk about the contents of this proclamation because it is under wraps until it's actually released. I can say that I am pleased with it. Uh, and this is the culmination of a lot of work, and it's just, it's just wonderful. I'm, I'm just so pleased that it's happening. Great. In the op-ed that you wrote with your brother, Michael, you wrote, Our mother was not a spy. The government held her life hostage to coerce our father to talk. And when that failed, it extracted false statements to secure her wrongful execution. The apparent rationale for such action, that national security demanded it during a time of international crisis, has disturbing implications in post-9-11 America. It is never too late to correct an egregious injustice. We call on the government to formally exonerate Ethel Rosenberg. So you both have said that your father was not guilty of the crime for which he was executed and that your mother was not guilty at all. Can you elaborate on that? Yeah. um, First of all, I mean, both the, the reason my parents' trial was the most sensational trial of the McCarthy period was because essentially they were charged with giving our arch enemy, the Soviet Union, the means to destroy us all. And that statement is 100% false. But it turns out that the reason that they could create this kind of false scenario is through a bait and switch, a kind of old-style deception. My father and a group of young people at the start of World War II Decide, and my father had bad eyesight, he couldn't join the army, decided that they were going to do what they could to help the Soviet Union defeat Hitler. And they had some technical connections because my father was an electrical engineer and he knew people who were in graduate school in the sciences. And they did what they could to funnel military industrial information to the Soviet Union during the 1940s. And the government took that because my father was not a top-notch scientist, but rather the recruiter, the person who got others involved. They took that because they knew if they could make him cooperate, they could get a lot of names. It wasn't a question of quality. It wasn't the secret of the atomic bomb. It was a bunch of idealistic amateurs trying to do what they could to help the war effort and to defeat Hitler. And and frankly, I'm not so sure I think that's such a bad thing. But 
in order to demonstrate that they had solved the big problem, which was how the Soviet Union got access to our atomic information, they sort of morphed this other idealistic non-atomic effort into stealing the secret of the atomic bomb. And my father refused to cooperate. He said, no, I'm not going to do that, and I'm not going to turn on my friends. I'm not going to name any names. And in order to coerce my father, they arrested my mother, and they got her a death sentence as well. And that's one of the things that capital punishment is often used as, to coerce cooperation rather than as actual punishment for a crime. So they held my mother hostage, and when my parents refused to cooperate, refused to turn on their friends, they executed her, and they executed him as well. And the evidence against my mother, the evidence indicates that she was not guilty of spying at all. Now, the charge against my parents was conspiracy to commit espionage. And if if it's true, that means they were involved in some sort of secret conspiracy. Well, it's very hard to prove that somebody was not involved in a secret conspiracy. After all, if it's secret, how do you know? So it's impossible for me to prove my mother's innocence. But we can prove that there was no credible evidence presented against her. And we can also prove that she was not a spy. And an assistant attorney general at the time actually said to the FBI, there was insufficient evidence, quote, unquote, insufficient evidence against her, but that she could be used as, quote, a lever against her husband, end quote. It's that kind of manipulation by governmental authorities that we have to be concerned about because that kind of manipulation can be used against any of us. And what we find is that those people gathering snippets of 50-year-old KGB files and a statement here and a statement there. Those people who are saying, oh, well, Ethel must have known about it. Ethel must have somehow helped. And we can point to this quote from this person in order to show that. They're, those folks, they're not concerned about governmental power. They're not concerned about how this can be used against us. They want to transform the discussion into whether Ethel had some level of culpability. And when you put that up against the grand jury transcripts, sworn statements taken contemporaneously that we can know exactly what the prosecution witnesses said and when they said it and that they said it under oath, and then we can demonstrate when this contradicts what they said at the trial that they were lying when you put the quality of evidence we have against the quality of evidence they have, and when you put the fact that they're trying to show that some woman from the Lower East Side of Manhattan may have had something to do with a secret conspiracy up against government manipulation that threatens us all, you see the difference between what we're saying and what our opponents are claiming. And there's a very moving letter that your mother wrote to you and Michael on the day of her execution. I wanted to read some of that, if that's okay. Sure. Um, 
She says, dearest sweethearts, my most precious children, only this morning it looked like we might be together again after all. Now that this cannot be, I want so much for you to know all that I've come to know. Unfortunately, I may write only a few simple words. The rest your own lives must teach you, even as mine taught me. At first, of course, you will grieve bitterly for us, but you will not grieve alone. That is our consolation, and it must eventually be yours. Eventually, too, you must come to believe that life is worth the living. Be comforted that even now, with the end of our slowly approaching, that we know this with the conviction that defeats the executioner. Your lives must teach you, too, that good cannot flourish in the midst of evil, that freedom and all the things that go to make up a truly satisfying and worthwhile life must sometimes be purchased very dearly. We wish we might have had this. Tr- this part is very hard for me to read because it's very sad. Um, we wish we might have had the tremendous joy. Sorry. Um, the first time crying on air. Okay. We wish we might have had the tremendous joy and gratification of living our lives out with you. Your daddy, who is with me in the last momentous hour, sends his heart and all the love that is in it for his dearest boys. We press you close and kiss you with all our strength. Lovingly, Daddy and Mommy. When did you hear that for the first time or read that for the first time? You know, I don't even remember. I probably is a teenager because growing up, I grew up in a household where this material was available to me. Abel and Ann Mirapola, my adoptive parents, were very wise They left all this material on a bottom shelf on a living room bookshelf and never mentioned anything to me about it, probably knowing that as a teenager, sooner or later, I would discover it and look through it. And that's what I did. So probably as a 15 or 16-year-old in high school is when they encountered that. And of course, now, whenever I hear that letter, I think of the Rosenberg Fund for Children and all the major events that we have done. And we often feature readings of that letter. And when I hear you reading it, I hear Eve Ensler's voice reading it and Susan Sarandon's voice reading it and other people who have performed on our behalf. And it's, of course, very moving. Also, that idea that others will continue, that there'll be a community of support is something that has has sort of been a a guiding light for me and has helped me. I would love to have you back on. Maybe we can see you on Monday. I definitely am going to go to the event. Can you give the details once more about the event it's on Monday 11 for your mother? a.m. on the steps of City Hall. This will be a historic occasion honoring my mother, Ethel Rosenberg, on her 100th birthday. Is there anything you want listeners to know about your mother that you feel has not been communicated or isn't known by the public? All I can say is that she she was an extraordinary person. In, I, I was too young to really know her, and I regret that. But She graduated high school at the age of 15. She led a strike in the garment district at at the age of 19. She was actually fired for helping to lead that strike and then won one of the very first cases for the newly created NLRB, um, National Labor Labor Relations Board. So all of that stuff, the stuff that she did before she was arrested, is largely unknown but it's something that people should know about her. Well, thank you so much. And anything you want to tell us about Abel Maripol, who adopted you and your brother and wrote the anti-lynching poem, Strange Fruit, which was, of course, immortalized 
by Billie Holiday. Well, and I, I would say that he wrote both the poem and the music. And the music. Uh, Billie Holiday popularized it, and really that's what I would want to say about April Mirapol, that, you know, the man who hated lynching so much that he wrote that song ended up adopting the children of people he would consider having suffered a legal lynching. Well, thank you so much, and we will go on Monday, and again, would love to talk to you more and have you back on the show. Okay, I look forward to seeing you on Monday and all your listeners. Great. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Bye. That was Robert Mirapol, the founder and former executive director of the Rosenberg Fund for Children. We're going to play a bit of Strange Fruit which was written by the man who would adopt the children of the Rosenbergs. Black bodies swinging in the southern breeze. Strange fruit hanging from the update to the story. I saw Robert Mirapol at the event he mentions during the interview. Here is a report filed by Richard Barr for WBAI News, live at the event. Ethel Rosenberg was executed with her husband Julius at the height of Cold War hysteria in 1953. Many have long thought that her conviction and execution for assisting in an attempt to convey atomic secrets to the Soviet Union was based on trumped-up charges. More recently released evidence has strongly supported that conclusion. So on her birthday, members of the city council and the Manhattan borough president gathered at City Hall with a proclamation and recognition. City councilman Danny Drum explains why he and 12 of his colleagues were presenting the proclamation to the Rosenberg sons today. When Ethel was convicted, it was a time of Jew baiting. It was a time of McCarthyism a time of anti-communist hysteria, and it's time now that we begin to right the wrong of what happened to Ethel Rosenberg. Manhattan Borough President Gail Brewer spoke of Ethel's place in a pantheon of progressive women activists. Her story sounds like many others who are inspired and passionate New York women whose activism at a young age shaped the city's labor movement, Bessie Abramowitz-Hillman, or Clara Lemlitz-Shevison, or Pauline Newman, all women whom we honor over and over again. The difference, of course, is that Ethel Rosenberg's life was tragically stolen from her by the U.S. government when she was only 38 and the mother of two young boys. As we know from indisputable evidence uncovered by her children and grandchildren, she was not a Soviet spy. Robert and Michael Mirapol, the Rosenberg's sons, have conducted a long campaign to bring just recognition to the unfairness of their parents' prosecution. Here's Robert. Today, a major elected institution of this great city and Manhattan's borough president have taken important steps towards acknowledging a terrible injustice. Next, it is time for the federal government to step up and do the same. And one final thank you to my parents, Ethel and Julius Rosenberg, for their courage, their faithfulness to their ideals, and their activism to create a better world for their children. This past summer, a judge ordered the unsealing of the grand jury testimony 
of the chief witness against our parents. Michael Mirapol said the recent evidence finally proves that his mother was not an espionage agent. We believe the government framed her to put pressure on our father. They took her as a hostage and then murdered her when our father refused to falsely confess to atomic espionage and name names. We call upon Attorney General Lynch and President Obama to acknowledge the injustice done to Ethel Rosenberg as a way of learning from our past. Those wishing to add their voices to a campaign to convince the President and Attorney General to act can follow the website of the Rosenberg Fund for Children, www.rfc.org, for further details. Richard Barr, WBAI News, New York.